This episode of the American Farriers Journal podcast is brought to you by SmartPak. Hi, this is Jessica, SmartPak's National Director of Equine Health Education. SmartPak knows that the most important part of hoof health is consistent, quality maintenance from you, the hoof care professional. But as you know, some horses need extra nutritional support to maintain hoof horn quality and growth rate. At SmartPak, we offer a variety of hoof supplements for all needs and all budgets, and we'd be happy to help your clients find the perfect supplement for their horse. They can call our highly trained team at 1-800-461-8898 or visit us anytime at smartpak.com. Welcome to the American Farrier Journal podcast. I'm Jeremy McGovern. Here's a story that begins with running away from home as a teenager and goes to shoeing a horse that wins the Triple Crown. That's a remarkable climb, and it's the true life story of Curtis Burns. From his humble start in Minnesota to his hoof care and manufacturing businesses in Florida, Curtis has had an interesting journey in the horse world, and it's not over yet. And while he is proud of his work in helping Justify win the Triple Crown and slightly embarrassed by the attention, The work on Justify isn't how Curtis wants his career to be remembered after he's gone. In this podcast episode, he talks about his career in horseshoeing and what is much more important to him than working on a single champion. I grew up in Minnesota out in the middle of nowhere, and we always had horses and mules. And I had uh, just a background of that from my father always having them. He would chew our own horses. You know, where we were at, uh, there was no farriers. Uh, if he had horses, you took care of them yourself. And so I grew up around that, and my dad would get asked to do other horses in the neighborhood. Uh, his father and grandfather had both been farmers and actually used horses uh, in farming. It, you know, it was just long, long history of horses in our family and, you know, work horses, you know, we use horses sometimes to go hunting on, you know, as far as going back into the back country or whatever, go deer hunting, things like that, pack horses back in. So, um, I just, uh, you know, bottom line, I grew up, grew up around them. Uh, I ended up running off, uh, from home at an early age to the racetrack. Uh, uh, I was probably about 14, 15 years old. A guy that I had met owned a few racehorses, uh, real cheap horses that were that was close to home to us. And he asked me because I was a small little guy that if I could exercise his horses a little bit, and um, I would go over to his place and ride him in the field. And you know, come springtime, he said, "Hey, uh, are you interested in riding along with me to the track? And I'm going to drop my horses off to my trainer in the spring." And I said, "Absolutely." And so I jumped in the truck and we went on our way to Pierce, South Dakota. And uh, when we got there, I never went home. I never finished high school, just stayed at the track and worked. I was fortunate enough to get around some good people that kind of led me in the right direction. Um, I ended up becoming a jockey and uh, eventually um, I I got too heavy and ended up uh, realizing that, you know, the next stage of where I could go was possibly training horses. So I was really fortunate that I had a, an old uh, fellow that um, I worked for, Buddy Rains, uh, Virgil Rains is his name, um, that uh, helped me actually kind of secure my first own stable of my own. And I ended up uh, training horses actually in New Jersey and in New York. And I had a couple of nice stakes winners and stuff in uh, New York. And, but I just was frustrated with the shoeing work that I was getting done. And just having the background that I had with horses, um, I always had a shoeing box. I, you know, I, was, I, never, I always kind of took it for granted that I knew how to be able to tack a shoe on. If I had a shoe off, well, I didn't call it a blacksmith. I just, you know, did it myself. And that pretty soon, um, you know, I got to, like, I was frustrated with maybe a way the horse was shod. So I'd pull the shoes off and reset the horse. And pretty soon I'm like... I'm resetting more than I'm, you know, why not just do this myself? And I always said, you know, what I lacked in knowledge about shoeing horses, I would make up for in the fact that I really cared about my horses and I was going to do the best I could for them. I wasn't going to just go through it as fast as I could. So that's really where it all started. And pretty soon I had more trainers asking me to look, you know, like they would say, who's shoeing your horses? And I'd say, well, I do it myself. And they'd say, could you look at one for me? And it just kept snowballing, and pretty soon I just had more and more of them. 
I came along at a funny time in history, sort of uh, where it was kind of a good old boys club that uh, there was a so-called union uh, on the racetrack that really wasn't didn't exist anymore. And at one time, yes, there was a union, but at at this stage of the game, it was kind of dissipated and falling apart. And but they still tried to pretend they had one, and they would basically keeping people out. So um, they did everything they could to keep me from getting my license, which was really tough. It was financially tough on me and my family, and um, it was really frustrating. And I was actually told about the possibility of me going to New Bolton and uh, taking a test there. And uh, if I were able to do that, they wouldn't be able to stop me from working on the track. So that's what I did. Uh-huh. Can you talk about that good old boys network? How, how would they run an interference, or why? why uh, basically, they basically, the racing commission kind of gave them their, the opportunity to run their own deal. Like you still had to go to get a license at the commission, but if you went to the to the racing office to get a license to be a blacksmith, you had to have what usually they each track would pick out somebody that was kind of like the shop steward they would call them. And they would have to sign for you to be able to go in and get your license to shoe horses. And without that, you couldn't get it. So basically, if you went to him and he liked you or decided you were okay or somebody's son or cousin or, you know, whatever, they would maybe give it to you. But if you weren't, uh, you weren't getting the license. That's all there was to it. Now, what they would do is they'd say, oh, you have to take a test. For my situation was is every time I, I went in the blacksmith shop and I started practicing. I said, well, you want me to take a test? I'm glad to do it. So I went in there and started practicing, practicing. And when they could see that I was able to do what they were asking, they would keep changing what I needed to do. And pretty soon it was just blatantly obvious that they were just, you know, basically wasting my time spinning my wheels. And, you know, I went to the racing office and said, you know, like, I'm able to do everything they're asking. They won't give me the test. Their argument was, is that we can't stop our daily work to uh, spend a day with somebody to give them a test to be a horseshoer for one person. Like, we need at least to have a couple people uh, to make it worth our while to take the day off to uh, be able to give this test, which was, there's two ways of looking at it, you know. No, basically, you weren't letting me have the opportunity to take a test. Anyway, I went to New Bolton. I was able to get my license, and I was met with a lot of resistance because I did that. And I uh, I look back on it, and it's just been, uh, you know, it, it, it it's hard to really put it into words like the emotions that kind of go through your head that, you know, the people that you ran into that along the way that you thought were your friends and all of a sudden you find out that they were actually doing everything they could to keep you from making a living. And all I, all I asked for was a fair shot, shake it, you know, being able to shoe a horse, you know, which I think so many of us take for granted unless you lived through that era. Um, no, was, was that anybody who wanted to become a, a track farrier hit that sort of resistance? Unless, you know, Maybe you were family or, okay. you know, or, or apprenticed forever under somebody's umbrella or, you know, and, and it was just, uh, you just couldn't go in someplace and decide, hey, I'm going to new, I'm going to move to New York and I'm going to shoe horses up there, you know, and, and say if you were like shoeing horses off the track and you were a good horseshoer, uh, you know, you go up there and that didn't mean you could just walk in and get a license, you know, they had to approve you. How, how did that shape you? You know, did it, did it give you more drive? Or did it influence how you wanted to treat people? Oh, absolutely. Uh, um, I think uh, the fact that I've uh, I've worn so many hats in the industry, I think, has been one of the best things that ever happened to me. The fact that I, I rode races as a young man, I trained horses, I owned some horses along the way as well. You know, as a rider, I, I shoe horses as I know what I need that horse to be able to do under under me while I'm riding the horse. As a trainer, I know the responsibility and the troubles that he has relaying what maybe needs to be done to his horse shoeing-wise and economics of it that he has to ask for, the, for more money than normal to get a horse fixed and... And I also know the owner's end of it. Got it. It's like it seems like all I do is spend money. You know what I mean? And what am I getting back for? So I, I think I approach my workout on an everyday basis with a lot, a lot of that that's imprinted in me. That you know, I just uh, I look at it from a lot of different avenues as opposed to just being a horseshoer going in and and chewing a horse. Um, you know, I, I, th- I think about that a lot. Uh, probably a lot more in you know 
the back of my mind than I do in the front, but uh, it's there. So once you were able to take the test, passed it, how did your career go from there? I went good. Uh, it's kind of funny. Uh, I have to tell this story because I think it's funny. I, the day that I got my license, uh, they were having a, a meeting uh, amongst the farriers that there was a particular job that had been decided by the shop steward that was going to be opened up. They were very good about, like, if somebody wasn't getting paid, the other farriers would not go into the job and do any horses there until that farrier was paid up or swap jobs until, you know, they, they, everybody stuck together very good that way and kind of protected each other. I have to give them a lot of credit on that. But what had happened is there was a particular farrier that had been not billing the owner. And what he had done is he basically was putting him in jail to where he had so much work that it was almost a protective barrier for him to where he had the guy in jail to where he owed him so much money he couldn't fire him. And, you know, you can't take that job because this guy owes me money. Hmm. And, well, when the shop steward was approached by this trainer and explained to him what was going on, he said, I'm glad to pay him. But, I mean, like, he hasn't even billed me for it's six months into the year. And, like, I haven't gotten last year's bills. And it was a, it was a big uh, stable, too, a private, private stable. And so, um, anyway, the veterinarian that worked in there was a, uh, had known me and actually had worked for me as my veterinarian when I was training horses. And he, he had seen my work that I was doing, you know, shoeing. And he says, you know, he kind of talked to me about this guy's looking for a guy. And I said, well, you know, I've just got to get this license thing sorted out. And it just happened to all fall into the right place at the right time. So my first day as a farrier on the track, I had to attend this meeting. The shop steward came by and seen me and said, you got to be at the shop today at, you know, one o'clock. I went over and little did they know, I had already had an interview with that trainer that uh, was looking for a new farrier. So they all had this meeting and they basically decided that this, uh, this job was open for uh, someone to be able to take it, that they weren't going to allow, allow this guy to keep this guy in jail, that they whoever did take it had to make sure that on a monthly basis there was some money paid towards the balance that he was owed, but that the, sh the job was open. And, of course, two or the three of the biggest guys there, they were sure they had this new job that was opened up because they were quite excited about it. It was a, it was a good stable. And um, when we walked out of there, uh, the meeting was over. I got in my car and I drove directly over to that barn and I shod my first horse. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that did not make me any more popular than I already was. <laughs> so... <laughs> I, and, uh, so yeah, I started out. It started out tough for me. Yeah. How how do you balance that? You you want to like you said, you want to go out. You want to support the family. You want to build your business. But these are the guys you're going to work with. How did you try to balance that out and improve those relationships with the other farriers? Well, for a long time, it was just a matter of keeping my head down and and working. I just uh, I tried not to be involved in anything other than just making a living. I didn't. Uh, it was kind of an unwritten law, like on the racetrack, you didn't have business cards, you never solicited business, like you had to have them come to you. Um, you didn't have anything to do with the owners, you know, like you only dealt with the trainer and God forbid, like you were $5 more or $5 less than the other guy, you know, like everybody, they kind of set a, a standard uh, price for things. And I look back on it and especially my, as I've gotten, you know, into different disciplines and, and, uh, uh, so many, so many different areas of the industry. I, I look back at it and I can't tell you how wrong they were in doing so. Um, they, they, you know, to me, um, you know, in the hunter jumper world, say in Wellington, Florida, where I live, I mean, there's guys that are uh, getting anywhere from 250 uh, horse to the sky for uh, showing a horse, and depending on what they, you know, can charge their client and get by with, and what they, what their client thinks they're worth. They wanted to basically keep everybody in jail where somebody didn't have an advantage on, on the ability. And to me, I mean, if you have more ability, why not ask for more money to not have to work yourself to death? And, you know, I, I make as much money on a handful of horses now that I do a month as I did when I shot all day along, seven days a week. So it's taken years, of course, to get to that position. But, um, you know, I just I think what it did also is it didn't give us it didn't make us have any value. Uh, uh, you know, like you were just, you were just one of the guys that shot horses and everybody got the same. Everybody was like, everybody's supposed to be the same. 
And I see that still today in the horseshoers. We're, uh, we're here at this convention. We're in Saratoga, New York. And there is not one farrier that I know of that's uh, here uh, that's from the racetrack. And it's literally like a mile away. And there's, you know, there's several guys that are there. And why aren't they here for continued education? Uh, the experiences that I've had and, and um, the amazing horses that I've had the opportunity to work on um, didn't come because I didn't try to learn and, and improve myself. They came because I did. And, you know, these guys have an opportunity to something that's in their backyard and they don't do it. It's really sad. I mean, I, I don't I don't know why, but it's it's frustrating for me to see. And then I see them and they they look at me and they think I'm lucky. You know, I mean, luck to me looks like a lot of damn hard work. <laughs> you know? So, um, you know, I've I've, uh, I've I've dedicated a lot of time and effort, you know, and uh, to it and. And I love it. I enjoy. It. There's nothing that I have more uh, passion for than than helping helping along a situation and improving a, a horse's career and uh, being that turning point. Sometimes that don't get much better for me. So as your career progressed, you, you got that first good barn. And about what year was that? And then oh uh, god, um, it was probably in the late '90s, um, uh, kind of mid to late '90s, I guess. And um, I just really was fortunate because I was I I was I'd worked for some really good horsemen as a you know assistant trainers and things like that and I just I had a good I had a good reputation amongst like good horsemen and so when I started shoeing horses that those doors opened up easy for me uh, just to be able to you know when something happened but something that also I can say that decision that I made that I think was really really helpful was I used to go to Keeneland every year. And they had a spring and fall meet, which they still do, obviously. But uh, I made the decision to go there instead of going up to the Meadowlands. Like, I was, I was shoeing horses at Monmouth Park. And instead of going to the Meadowlands, I decided, you know what, I'm going to take a shot. And I know I, I, it's probably a big leap, but I'm going to go to Keeneland. And I'm going to try to shoe in there and see what happens. And um, the interesting part was is that a lot of the top, top stables would all go there at that time with a handful of horses. And in, in, they wouldn't necessarily bring their farrier in to shoe these horses. So all of a sudden, you know, like you might be working for Mr. Kroll, who I had known for a good part of my life, and, but I'd never shot a horse for him. But they came to Keeneland, and they knew me from Monmouth Park, and they had five horses, five of their best horses there. And they needed some horses shot, and they said, Curtis, could you come by the barn and catch a couple for us? And I did. And guess what? Mr. Cole started using me to do a few more because he liked what he seen. And that happened with several people that were from all over the country would come in and I'd get the opportunity to maybe just do a few courses for them. Um, but they liked what they seen. And the next thing you know, is like the next year they came in, they were like, you know, like, I, I don't have to shoe all my horses before I, you know, get them on the van. I'm, I'll just have Curtis do them when we get to Keeneland. And pretty soon maybe I might be in the same neighborhood is or they maybe bring a string to the east coast and the next thing i know is they'd come in elliot walden was one of those people that i had done some work for he came to monmouth and guess what i i had elliot walden as a, a client it all starts to go back to justify guess what you know he's the head guy for winstar and and bob bafford's been a longtime customer of mine and the combination of all these people that I've met and worked for over the years, you know, has ended up kind of coming together on, you know, my opportunity to work on one of the best horses might have walked in, around here in a long time. I think that was probably intended to be a punctuation to this interview, but uh, let's talk about Justify. And like you said, it's, it's all a culmination of, of your work over the years. Yeah. How did this opportunity come around? Honestly, I'm still surprised that it came around, to be honest with you. Um, Bob and I had a really bad falling out about uh, probably three or four years ago, and it was uh, it was overbilling. Um, I used to do a really, really nice mare for him. Um, her name was Indian Blessing, and I followed her around doing her in Belmont and wherever she was at. And she um, she was a great great filly, probably one of the one of the favorite horses I ever worked on for. Him, to be quite honest, and she had some problems over the years. And it was the reason she was one of my favorites is every time that you could fix her and get her back together, she would lay lay her body down. She would you know she would give her everything she had. <clears throat> so uh, 
anyway, um, Bob had always been like the best pay, you know, like you send him a bill, boom, you got paid. Suddenly, like I wasn't getting paid anymore. And this bill, like I'm flying around, I got, you know, travel expenses, this, that, and, uh, you know, like, what's the deal here, you know? And so my wife's like, does all the billing and all that. So uh, she said, you know, this time I'm just going to send him a hard copy as well as the email. Like we've always done it. We were doing exactly as we'd always done. And of course he got the hard copy and he called me up and says, you know, the hell was this you know like it's a this bill for like thousands of dollars and like the mayor retired like after that last race in new york you know which she had won and i still hadn't been paid <laughs> i think it was a grade one and i'm like you know what the hell you know like i haven't been paid either you know and so we were we're arguing over the phone about this bill well what had happened is the bookkeeper had a, an email that she had all of her clients send the bills to and then she would sort them out and do you know this trainer that trainer but that everybody's stuff came to one email well she also shared that email with her husband and i guess the bills were getting erased or he didn't recognize where what it was and um, and the next thing i know is uh we ended up in a terrible argument over it and i got paid yeah but uh it wasn't until later on we found out that it, that's what had happened and it was well after and i give bob a lot of credit because he he came to me and wanted to apologize to me about it. He says, you know, like, listen, I found out what happened here. You know, it wasn't your fault. But, you know, we'd both said some things to each other that, you know, I'm sure that, we, you know, no, I know we would like to take back because we got to talk about it, uh, you know, with this uh, whole venture with Justify. But after that, we just really never did any business together. And with him being on the West Coast, me and on the East Coast mostly, uh, we just didn't, we didn't really have too many opportunities to run into each other to, hey, you know, how are you doing? Or, you know, hey, could you look at a horse for me? That's usually how it happens. I'm on the rail with something and, you know, somebody says, could I follow you back and look at something? Anyway, unfortunately, um, uh, we just never really got back together. So my wife and I are watching the Kentucky Derby. Justify wins the Derby. And I told my wife, I said, you know, the Derby could be one of the only races I can really think of that I, the big ones that I haven't done a winner in. It's kind of, and I said, I wish I could have done that. And she looked over at me and she says, you sound like you're dying. Or, you know, <laughs> you're, you're not dead yet, you know? And I'm like, yeah, but I like, I hardly do any racehorses at all anymore. My practice has mostly moved over to the sport horse world. And I, I still do a couple of horses um, for Kathy Ritvo, actually, um, a horse, a, a lady that trained Mucho Macho Man. I had done uh, that horse for her. And I always kind of joke around. They gave me a breeding to them. And I says, it's the gift that keeps costing me money. <laughs> <laughs> and how, does, uh, how do you uh, take uh, somebody that's been so generous to you and tell them, no, I don't want to shoot your horses for you. So, you know, they got me in jail that way, too. So it's been, it was a gift that's been costing me a lot of, a lot of money. So, but no, it's, I've been, Mr. Reeves is very generous and um, Kathy's great. But anyway, you know, I just didn't think at where my career is and, you know, with my shoe business and everything. I just, you know, I'm just not in the mix anymore and not often not thought about. And out of sight, out of mind I, is a lot of cases, you know. You know, the derby runs the next day, uh, you know, Bob leads the horse out and, you know, the horse looked great. You know, he told me all about it and he said, you know, the horse looked great and going around the shed row and, but there's shavings all on the shed row. So it's real soft. And he's, you know, screaming, you know, they're like, man, he came out of that good, you know? And of course the press all shows up and he grabs, throws a shank on him and leads him out. And of course everybody knows the rest of the story, you know, just happened to step wrong and you know sting that foot on that gravel and everything and bob's swinging him around and yeah it looks great as he's limping behind him but of course he's looking in the opposite direction and he says boy did i feel like an idiot that you know like looking at that stuff you know like yeah he's great um so anyway a few of my friends all said like bob's gonna be calling you you know and i said no i don't think bob's gonna call me you know and i said we you know kind of went our different ways We'd had a lot of a lot of success together, but um, you know, like I said, unfortunately, we went to different ways. So um, about a week later, sure enough, um, the phone rang, and uh, it was them calling me and um, asked if there was any way that I could come to Louisville to look at him. His, uh, his he had bruised his foot really badly, and it had calmed down, but they still weren't quite happy with the way that he was, you know, going. And he had a, an important work the next day. He was due to be shod. 
and they said, you know, we'd really like you to step in and, and help us with, you know, what you think is the best way to protect this foot, you know, going forward. Fortunately, um, you know, it was Sunday morning and I called my assistant and I said, is there any way you could meet me back at the shop? And she said, yeah, what's up? And I told her I had an emergency pop up and I got to go out of town. I don't have anything ready to go. So she met me back there. We threw all my gear in my, my travel boxes and I, she drug me to the airport. And literally from the time in the morning I got the phone call, four hours later, I was in the air on my way to Louisville. And um, we did the horse. Um, everything went great. That evening, Bob and I went to dinner, and we talked about it, you know, about our situation that we, you know, how things had went, and, uh, you know, how unfortunate it was, and he said, you know, you, every time I've ever been in a pinch time-wise, uh, you've always come through with me, for me, you know, and we were like, we had to work the next day, it was like, I just, I just had a feeling you were the guy for the job, and he says, you know, when I'm, I'm fortunate enough to have this kind of quality animal in my, my care, it doesn't matter. If I have an opinion about somebody or an argument with somebody, um, if I think that guy's the right guy to help me enable this horse to achieve his potential, that's the guy I got to call. If I don't call, I'm not doing my job. And he says, you know, I think you were the guy. So it was kind of cool for us to be able to kind of mend the fence. And, and it was good. You know, I, I, not only did I get to, uh, you know, shoe one of the greatest horses, I uh, got to, you know, mend the fence of uh, friendship. So it was, that's it was beautiful. It's a good story. Yeah. So maybe more on the technical side, when when you get there, talk about your thought process of, of how you're going to help this horse. Well, there's some of it, you know, like I can't really talk sure. about. You know, it's just not right for me to talk about. Uh, there's, you know, a lot to it. But, um, you know, the, the bottom line is, is it was just exactly what they all said. It was a really bad bruised foot. And uh, we, all I want to do is try to protect it the best I could and not make any changes uh, either. They expected me to come in and glue shoes on them and do my, my, my shoes on because that's generally what I would do when Bob would call me. And uh, a horse that's that good and doing that well, I don't believe in change. You know, I just, I want to, I'm, even though a lot of people kind of joke around and call me like a glue guru or whatever this, that, um, I honestly consider myself very much a minimalist. I try to keep things as simple as possible and as easy to replicate as possible. Um, I don't, uh, if I come in and I'm able to fix your horse and I put some science project on it that nobody else can do, and, but I can't be the guy that keeps repeating it for you, I haven't done the, the horse or the client really any good. Uh, you know, I've, I'm leave, I've left him in a spot where, like, okay, he's comfortable when that guy works on him, but now what do I do? Um, my job is, is to enable this horse, and I say that all the time. I, I consider myself that I'm an enabler, uh, not necessarily a fixer. And if we're looking at it to fix it in a therapeutic aspect, you know, over time, and, and in a lot of cases, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm just patching them together with duct tape and sending them out there and and uh, where they can hurt themselves. If I can get them back together and, and uh, stabilize things, get things right, and the horse is comfortable, a lot of times they heal as they're in training. You know, I've had as much success at rehabilitation with a horse uh, fixing his foot while he's in work as I have probably actually more success doing that than sending them home to the farm because they'll pull the shoes on and the next thing you know is like, you know, six months later the uh, thing looks as bad or might be worse than it was when they started out and the horse comes in and oh well, he had all this time off he should be great no it's a lot of times it's worse so if they're under the care of somebody like Baffert or somebody like that they're going to get far more attention than they are sent home I, I can promise you that you got to a point in your career where there's the delegation there's a trust and and we'll talk about your your transition into working with sport horses but you know, you're working with a high quality trainer. For you as a farrier, your perspective, what separates the great trainer from the, the good trainer? The greats, they have a confidence in what they do. I had somebody say something to me the other day that I, I'd never heard it said that way. Uh, Dwight Sanders uh, told me we were at WEG and uh, we got to have a chance to chat and talk. And he says, you know, experience is the, is the knowledge that you're about to screw up the second time. And that's so true. Like, you know, I can't tell you how many times that I've been underneath a horse and I have a plan. 
And there's just something screaming at me like, stop, because you've been here before and it didn't go well. You know, it's just something about the way the horse is not wanting to stand the same. Or, you know, it's just there's some trigger there that's causing you to question what you're doing. And you listen because you've been there and have repeated it. And you've learned to listen to your gut. And that's that's what these trainers have. They have that intuition where, like, they just know, just like he knew which guy that he wanted to call that time. You know, I mean, I'm sure Bob's had several horses with bruised feet over you know, the past four years. But, you know, this particular one, he decided it needed to be Curtis. You know, that and the confidence to, like, stay to your guns. Like, when I showed up to do that horse, there was another farrier there. There was a, uh, a vet there and, um, you know, a few other people. And there was all kinds of opinions going on about what should be done. And um, you know what, Bob, I, I finally, after listening and, you, you know, you got to have bedside manner when you're doing this stuff, you know, like you can't just come in there like a bulldozer and I'm, I'm doing this, you, you know, you talk about it. And a lot of times the success that I have is listening. You know, I, I listen, I try to investigate what has been done. Um, and the more I learn and the, the more that I learned that maybe didn't help or didn't work, uh, might have been what I was thinking about doing. So, uh, like, why repeat that if it had, had somebody that's qualified and a good farrier has already done that? It didn't work. Um, I don't need to repeat it. So, um, I, I do a lot of listening before I make, you know, before I say this is what I'm doing. It finally got to the point where, like, well, you know, we've been talking long enough. Like, I need to shoot the horse before it gets dark here. So I looked at Bob and I said, Bob, what do you what do you want me to do? And this is why I've had success with people like like Bob, Todd Pletcher, people of their sort, is that uh, whenever they've asked me to look at a horse and I evaluate him, I look at him, I like to think about it. And, uh, you know, as I said, ask a lot of questions. But when I went to him with my answer and, and, and what I want to do, um, those guys have never said no, never. And he did the same thing that day. He said, uh, I hired you to come in and do this horse, and I want you to do what's right, and that's it. And uh, that was the end of the story. I did what I, you know, and no more. Everybody realized that that's what Bob wanted, and no one, you know, they left it alone at that point. And so uh, it's um, that's the appreciation I have of being able to be able to do my job and and work uh, with people. And I, as I said, I'm not if I don't have a team, I don't have anybody to ask those questions of but I need real answers. I think it's always been really important for me to try to get as much of the team in the same room as possible because it's amazing how the timelines can, the assistant trainer has one timeline and the trainer has another and, you know, the exercise boys got another. And, um, you know, so it's, it's amazing that when you get everybody together, all of a sudden things start to, the puzzle starts to come together. And if you pay attention, you know, a lot of times, you know, you listen enough you, you get a good guidance on which way to, what direction you need to go. So when you're involved with a high-profile race and, and a high-profile horse, how did you manage or did you feel a lot of pressure more so? Or I guess when the stakes are high, do you feel different or do you, do you feel different pressure? Oh, God, yeah, the, the pressure that's on you. Now, the, the funny thing for me is like, Last night I had to speak here at this convention and I'm a wreck. I just like, I cannot get in front of people to save my life. It's, I struggle with it, but I can be sitting there and I have a horse that's, you know, running in the triple crown and the horse is in front of me and I know what I want to do. And I don't have any anxiety at all while I'm there with the horse and working. Uh, just, you know, it feels very natural. I just, it's easy for me, but the minute, from the minute I dropped that foot, I rerun it over and over and over in my mind of like, did I miss something? Did I look at him? Did I look at his confirmation right to make sure that, you know, the, the choices that I made and um, did I shoe him full enough, you know, to where he's got plenty of support? Uh, did I cheat him? Did I, you know, did I shoe him too full to where he's going to pull a shoe? You know, it's like all this stuff goes through your brain and it, and it just, I'm my biggest critic and I just, I beat myself up a lot, but I, I also realize that's probably why I've been successful is that I, I try not to leave any stones unturned. You know, I'm, I'm always, I'm always digging and I'm always looking. And yeah, it was the from the day I did them. It was I think six days till the Preakness, and I, I think I, I don't know that I got how many hours of sleep. Very few. I can tell you that because the wet. You know, not, not only was it a high pressure situation, but you know, there's a lot of guys that have done the kind of work that I've done. Uh, you know, working on a, a big horse and everything. 
but there wasn't very many of them that were led around on national television, you know, limping, uh, where everybody, that's all everybody was talking about. And, you know, to all of a sudden be the guy and, you know, I, I kind of kept it quiet as possible. I didn't, you know, talk about it and it really, it all calmed down uh, really well and, you know, the less we talked about, the, you know, the less fuel you put on the fire, the less flame was burning. And it was just good to see things uh, quiet. But the rain, like there was just, if there was bad conditions for a bad foot, um, it was everything leading up to the Preakness. I mean, it was just like monsoon. It was just in, at Pimlico, it just rained and rained and flooding. And, you know, if there, if there was ever con- bad conditions for a bad foot, it was that for the Preakness. So I, I, I can tell you that that was the longest two minutes of my life watching that race, uh, you know, just praying that everything went well. And, you know, those, those whole six days, I kept looking at my phone like, you know, in one way, I was wishing somebody would call, you know, and say, hey, everything's OK. But, in, you know, our business, usually no news is good news. And so I also hoped it didn't ring, you know, like if it would have been Bob, I'd been, oh, shit. <laughs> so... Uh, but anyway, uh, yeah, there's a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure. I, and I, it's so funny how I'm so, I'm so okay with it uh, when I'm working, but it's the aftermath. And people ask me, oh, you must be great. You must go to the races and watch the races and all that stuff. And I'm like, I never go to the races. I've, I've shot, I don't know how many Breeders' Cup winners that I've had and uh, top, top horses and I almost never, ever, ever go to the races when they're running. I feel like I've done the best I can with them. There's absolutely nothing else I could do. Um, I'm not going to make a difference by being there. And in a in a, a situation like that, um, like I re- I remember, you know, certain horses that I've worked on and and justify being one of them. And, uh, Mucho Macho Man, another uh, um, when they cross the wire. Um, it, these things, it's, it's a relief to me that everything went okay. That's like, that's my emotion. It's not me jumping up and down like we did it. We, you know, like, you know, I had, I made a difference in it. No, it's like, like the horse is okay. Uh, everything went okay. Now let's just pray that he comes out of the race. Okay. You know, it's just like, it's like, it's like a, a just big, like somebody pulled the plug and just drains the energy out of me. I guess all of us have different ways of handling pressures, you know, but that's, that's me. I just, uh, I, I struggle with it. I, I wish it was more of a pleasure for me, but yet there's an enjoyment there that keeps me, you know, keeps me doing it. I keep coming back to, you know, the same dog that bites and pets it again. <laughs> <laughs> I guess is the best way to say it. Did you ignore everything, you know, like social media and, uh, the ancillary trainers out there who see things or figure out how the horse should be shot. Did that ever get on your radar? Or do you do a good job of ignoring how the public would want? Yeah, that's a, that's a good thing. Like, um, I, I, for years, uh, everybody kept telling me, Chris, you should really do Facebook, you know, and stuff. Cause you know, it's amazing what, you know, the opportunities and things that you do and what you could pass along and, I just couldn't do it because I seen so much of that negative stuff that out there all the time. And I was like, I just can't get into this. And I have a young lady that helps me, uh, Rachel, she's my assistant and she's started working with our Facebook and doing it. And I keep telling her, she keeps making me sound a lot smarter than I am. <laughs> and I said, you know, and I said, Rachel, I, that doesn't sound like me. And she says, it does lately. <laughs> but she does a great job of, you know, taking my words and making them a lot more elegant to read. And, um, but I try not to read too much back, you know what I mean? And, and fortunately, what we've been doing is we try to do po- nice, good, positive educational posts. Uh, no opinions. I, if, if I don't, I'm not in here to have an opinion on somebody's work or what they've done or what they've done right or wrong. Um, we've all done horses. There's a very, very good, this is a great example. There was a great, great blacksmith I was fortunate enough to work with. His name was Jim Bays. And we were at this barn. Uh, I was there to help him one day. And this horse was led out to us. And oh boy, his feet looked rough. He's rubbing his chin. He says, Who shod this son of a bitch? <laughs> and the assistant trainer said to him, You did, Mr. Bays. And he looked at me and he says, I thought it looked like a good job. <laughs> and, you know, we've all had that horse, you know what I mean? And like, uh, you know, 
you, you're not there. You know, like you're, if you're not there, you don't have, you shouldn't have an opinion. If you're there to give an opinion on help, that's another thing, but not to beat somebody up. And so I think that's so important. Yeah, did that come a lot circling back to your, your earlier days of not wanting to beat up on other people because you're, you're kind of frozen out? Sounds like maybe that helped shape. I'm sure it did. I mean, I came up really poor and I, and I'm so fortunate to, you know, I have more than I could have ever imagined having. And, um, to me, the, this, and I, I said last night at the speech that I gave that, you know, I don't ever want my name really associated with a, a horse, a, a horse that I did. I hope it's more associated with what I give back to the industry. That's been so good to me. That's given me all that I have. That's what I love. I really enjoy helping somebody else make a step forward uh, way more than me moving up. It's always a lot more interesting looking in on somebody's career and life than it is actually living it. You know, it's like, you know, I, I don't look at myself any different than any of the other guys that are, you know, here at this uh, uh, convention today and, or anybody, you know, more, more accomplished or, you know, I've had good fortune and uh, I've had to work for it. I've sacrificed a lot to get those opportunities. Um, but they're, they're very achievable by a lot of people. And, um, and I enjoy giving somebody else that opportunity to do it. When I've had horses that have run in some of these big races that have worn uh, my shoes that I make, uh, that have won, I would rather that than me do the horse and, they, and that horse win. Because, of course, if I did the horse, they think, well, of course he put his shoes on it. But the horse probably could have wore regular shoes. But, you know, he, because he's shoeing it, he put his shoes on. So to me, it's always like a really neat thing to. Um, I had a really, really top, top farrier who I'm, I totally like really look up to and respect. Bob Pethick came to me today and said, I need to get more involved in your shoes. And he says, I just see him working. And he says, you know, you know what? That that to me is one of the greatest thrills that I, I could possibly have somebody at that level that's coming to me and saying, you know, I'm believing in what you're doing, you know, and I want to be part of that. And uh, I mean, that's as big an honor as you can get as far as I'm concerned. Let's talk about your shoes. Where, where did the idea, what was the genesis for Polyflex? It all goes back to one horse and uh, a little filly named Once Around, um, very well-bred horse that was uh, uh, owned by... Uh, the Humphreys, uh, a big breeder in Kentucky, and their daughter, Vicki, uh, was a really good friend of mine, and she was uh, starting her training career, and I, um, I started shooting for her as she started, and we were doing pretty well with like a lot of the rejects that maybe confirmation wasn't really good or this, that, so they weren't selling well at the sales, so they would just keep them and try to race them if they didn't get what they were looking for to sell them. Well, we had had a really, really good year, and her dad was really proud of her that she'd you know been doing pretty well. And he says, "You know what? Like, you can, you can pick out a really nice, really nice filly this year uh, out of the batch, and you know for you to train." And so she picked this beautiful filly, and um, we looked at her, and like she just looked like the real deal. And um, what happens? Of course, she ends up with a terrible, terrible foot injury. A loose horse actually ran by her. Well, Vicky was riding her and stepped on her foot and it literally like took, it looked like somebody taking a hatchet and just cut the outside of her foot right off and from the cornet band down. And I, I struggled with it and struggled with it. And the only way that she was sound was barefoot. And so, well, I'll leave her barefoot. You know, I mean, let's, you know, I'm not going to fight that, you know. So, um, but the problem was, is that she kept wearing her foot down so fast that like, she, you know, she, we were keep, able to keep her going and it was healing well, but uh, she wasn't sound if I put shoes on her and she was getting to where she was on the verge of becoming unsound because she was losing too much foot. So we'd have to stop on her a little bit, let her foot kind of catch up. And so um, anyway, I was like, God, if there was some way that I could just kind of create a, a barrier for her to where she, you know, the foot could still function like it wants to, but, you know, a barrier where her foot's not wearing out, let, let that barrier wear out. And that's really what it boiled down to is um, I, uh, I had a friend of mine named Joe Schrage that uh, was working with me at the time. I told him what I was wanting to do, and he says, well, I know a little bit about polyurethane. And he says, you know, maybe we could, you know, make a little shoe or something to help her. So we shaped up a shoe. Uh, we put it on her. Uh, or she, uh, you shape the shoe to her foot 
and we made a mold of it. And then we went and got some polyurethane and we uh, uh, poured, the, poured the mold and uh, took it out, glued it on her foot, and guess what? She was sound and uh, the foot kept growing. Uh, the shoe wore out to paper thin by the time we took it off and we were ready to redo her. And um, I made up another pair. I went over to put them on her and her foot had changed, didn't fit. I was like, shit. You know, like uh, now what am I, I got to make a whole, I got to go through this whole process, you know, and like, and she I really needed to, you know, get done soon. So anyway, I would sat there and scratched my head and I was like, God, if I could just figure out a way to open it up just a, a little bit more, you know, I could get this on her. And so um, I said, you know, what if, what if we got to put a wire in there to be able to just maybe bend that enough to where it would hold it open while we got it glued on? Cause that's really all it needed to do. So instead of going through the whole process of making another mold, went down to the hardware store and picked up some uh, wire and shaped it to fit in there. And we poured another shoe and went over there. Sure enough, it opened up and I glued it on her and away she went. And that little filly ended up going on to become a multiple stakes winner. And um, the funny thing about this is, is that after she retired, um, I never did another one for, uh, I think it was almost a couple of years. And a uh, really, really nice filly came along of uh, Todd Pletcher's that uh, was really talented. And uh, she had bad feet. Uh, and um, every time we'd get her sound and she'd do any speed work, she'd come up lame and in her feet. So I told Todd about these shoes that I'd made. And I said, you know, would you be interested in me trying this? I said, I don't know what else to do with her. And he says, what do we got to lose? Uh, let's do it. So I made up another pair. Uh, for her. I put them on and um, you know a day or two later I asked Todd I said how's that Philly doing he said nah he said I don't think I don't think it's gonna work and she's not really doing any better so I didn't I just kind of went out of my mind you know and um, next thing you know is about 30 days later uh, Todd's like hey we got to get the shoes on that Philly and I, you know and I said you told me that they weren't working. He said, oh, no. He said, about a week or so later, she started doing a little better, a little better, a little better. And he says, I've worked her a few times, and she's, like, had the fastest work of the day. I mean, she's she looks like the real deal, and they, she loves these things. So learned a valuable lesson, though, as we were supposed, she was supposed to run. And uh, she had gotten, you know, fit, uh, had her far enough along to where she was ready to run. And I think it might have been the second chewing, maybe. And... Uh, so I shot her like literally day, a few days before she was supposed to run. And uh, she just wasn't quite the same right after we would shoot her. It'd always take her about a week to kind of settle back in and, and get good again. So it was something that I always remembered in the back of my head that I was, you know, I'd always try to time my shooting. Like I would say, what are we doing? And work backward from that. Anyway, that filly went on to win several races. And as, uh, you know, that happened, of course, I started, you know, making a couple more pair and putting them on this other horse and that horse. And um, a lot of heel sore horses were really benefiting from them. And the next thing you know is there was a one page article uh, was written about me in the racing or in the Blood Horse Racing magazine and about my uh, people in the industry was uh, uh, and about me being a jockey, trainer, farrier now and uh that I was developing the shoe and the stats of the shoe were amazing. You know, how many, the percentage of them that were winning and the ones that were in the money. And it was almost like unrealistic, but, um, I even was accused one time by a farrier that I would not shoe a horse with my shoes unless I thought it was going to win, unless the horse was going to win. And I was like, if I was that good a handicapper, I said, I wouldn't bother shooting horses, <laughs> you know? So I said, you know, it, it was, uh, honestly, it's been one of the greatest, uh, thrills of my life, uh, this whole path of doing this, but it's also been one of the hardest. Um, I was telling a story a little while ago, uh, out there and people are coming and asking and uh, hit me up with a bunch of questions about, you know, my products and this and that. And, it was a it was a funny time. Also, it's like I always seem to choose uh, you know my path uh, to make it as difficult as I can in timing wise. <laughs> but just about the time my shoe was coming along, there was a lot of controversy over um, toe grabs that they felt that that was a lot of the injuries. And there had been a study by 
Mitch Taylor that uh, suggested that, and um, uh, and I I don't believe it was true at all. But it was you know it, it looks good on paper, but it doesn't really translate into the business. You know I I I've been in this industry my whole life, and believe me, toe grabs are not what was causing you know injuries. But anyway, during this time, uh, there was a lot of controversy over shoes and what we could do. And there was a lot of jealousy towards me because I was being brought in to work on a lot of top courses that were kind of people had hit a wall where they weren't able to fix them. And they're like, you know, people get desperate when they got a good horse and there's maybe a possible option. They're like, well, I'm, I'm, I didn't believe in it before, but I'm willing to listen to you now because I have that horse that I can't fix. I was hit with a lot of resistance because of, you know, the op- my opportunities that I was getting and the farriers were upset with me and, you know, you're coming in barns and doing horses, you know, and sad part is, is there's so many egos and things like that get in the way, you know, just like Bob said, like if, the, if there's a, a possibility for this horse to achieve something, get out of its way. You know what I mean? Let that horse be all in, let the owner reap the rewards that he's invested in. And, you know, it's like, um, I, I don't ever want somebody to be in jail with, you know, like you got to use the black, that person or this or whatever product or, but anyway, um, where I'm going is, uh, it was, it was, a, I was hit with a lot of resistance from the fairs and they all kind of ganged up on me and, uh, they, you know, but the horses were winning, you know what I mean? And doing well on that sore horses. I was fixing lame horses and the, I, and the next thing I know is the racing commission is coming down on me where they're trying to roll my shoes off and, you know, all these things were going on and trainers were sticking up for me. And I had meeting after meeting with the racing commissions and stuff to try to get them approved or keep them approved. Fortunately, I was kind of able to keep going, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't believe what I went through. I mean, it was, it was really, really tough. I mean, you could never appreciate what, what, uh, what, what we went through over the early years. And anyway, it boiled down to one, one particular day I had to go in and meet with the officials and at Belmont park. And I went there and they passed my shoe around amongst themselves and looked at it. And, Oh, you know, well, there's, you know, this one particular guy's not here today and we really need him to, you know, be here for us to make this full decision. And I was, I left there and I just drove three and a half hours down there to meet with these guys from my house in Saratoga. And I was upset, you know, I got, I went home and I I never forget it. And it was to get approved or just to stay able to run on the turf. This was what it was really all about at that time. And it wasn't about good, healthy decisions on helping horses. It was about grass. And I mean, I was like, I'm helping sore horse. There's no medicine. There's no injections. There's no nothing. It's just a shoe that makes a horse more comfortable and can make him allow him to compete. But you want to rule that off? You know what I mean? I just, it was really frustrating as hell. So I went home and I made one mold that with the same shoe, but I had it to where it would say turf on the shoe. And they wanted to meet me the following week. I went down there and I put the shoe on the table and I says, I totally redesigned this shoe. (laughs) And I says, this one is specifically made for the turf. All right. And they looked at it and they read turf on the shoe. They passed it around and they said, thank you, Mr. Burns for working with us. And my shoe was approved. (laughs) It was the exact same shoe that they kept denying over and over. And it's just, you know, a little, I, th- I thought I was being a little bit of a shit, to be yeah. quite honestly. <laughs> little did I realize I just needed to bring myself down to the level of the education that they had about what they were approving. And the stories are, can go on and on and on. And the poor people that are listening to this podcast will be falling asleep. But it's been honestly the, the, the longest, toughest uh, road you could ever, ever imagine. You know, and I, I thank my wife for putting up with me for all these years to you know, this obsession that I've had with, you know, I don't know if it's an obsession or what it is, but it's just a matter of like, it works, you know, it helps horses, you know, like what's wrong with that, you know? And, um, but, uh, as, as it's went along and I, and I get people, like I mentioned earlier, that suddenly start making the turn that want to get involved and be in part of it and, and using it. It's just, to me, I would, that's one of the highlights of my day of when I have that person that comes on board. And um, 
we sell everything directly to those guys because I come become sort of a support system for them. They're constantly asking me questions. I've got guys that have been customers of ours for 10 years now and still call me and ask a question like, I got this one I'm struggling with. Like, you know, here's some pictures. What do you think? You know, and, uh, you know, and we have this like relationship that I've built with all these guys over the years. And it's really, it's a unique deal. Is it that interaction, you know, helping the horse and, and getting the feedback the customers you have that kept you from giving up? Because I got to imagine it getting stonewalled from, like you said earlier, that level of education. It's easy just to say, you know, what, I can go back to just shoeing horses and using them where I can. The thing was, is every time, every time that I really hit that wall where I was really, I'd really had enough and I was just like, what am I doing? There's a, there's a thing that they call founder's uh, syndrome or something where somebody invents something and they believe in it so much that they like, they follow it to their grave, even though they still can't get it to work. They keep tinkering with it, try to make it, make it work because they believe that that's, that's it, you know? Well, that wasn't the case here. <laughs> you know, it was working, but the thing was, is I, get, I kept getting beat up so bad about it. Every time I got to the point where I wanted to quit, I just I said, this will be so much easier for me just to show up and shoe my horses and, you know, at the end of the day, go home and rest and maybe go fishing on once in a while instead of, the, you know, this deal of me being in the garage every spare minute trying to make shoes. Um, something amazing would happen, you know, an amazing uh, scenario, um, you know. Uh, Your life has been all these acts of rider turned trainer, trainer turned farrier, uh, farrier turned entrepreneur. One, one we haven't talked about is track farrier turned sport horse farrier. And why did you decide to make that change? You're doing very well on the track. I, I never planned on it, just like I never planned on being a blacksmith. <laughs> so I'll tell you the story. There's a, there's a lady that I really owe it to. Uh, her name's Andrea King. Uh, she knew me for a lot of years and from back in Aiken when I was working with Buddy Rains and, and way back. And uh, um, she would always, every once in a while, like say to me, uh, come and get me and say, you know, these guys just don't know how to glue, you know, shoes on at the show track, you know, that the, uh, these show farriers, none of them mess with glue. And they said, and every once in a while she'd have one that she just really felt needed glued. And out of nowhere, she'd always pop up, and I'd, I'd do an odd horse for her here and there, and just never really, you know, thought nothing of it. And then as the shoes, as my shoes come along, you know, of course, then she kind of got involved in that, and she was like, man, there's, you know, these things really made a big, big difference in a couple of these horses. I mean, they made them from, like, you know, average okay horses to, like, good horses. You know, she, you know, just kept dabbling here and there, and uh, all of a sudden, uh, I hadn't seen her for a while, and one, one day I was uh, at the showgrounds actually with a, a veterinarian that I'd helped out on a case and kind of as a thank you, he took me and my wife to the Grand Prix one night in Wellington. And so while we were there, here comes Andrea screaming through the crowd, Carlos. So anyway, she comes charging over there like, I've been trying to find you, you know, and, uh, you know, and, um, so no one around here knows you and uh, couldn't get your number. I lost all my contacts. My phone fell in the bucket or something. I can't remember. But anyway, she's, um, so she said, I got, I, I got a client that I'm really struggling with. And I know this horse has got feet problems, but you know, the vets can't figure it out. No one can figure it out. She said, I'm telling you, it's feet. And this lady is one of the best horsemen I know. She's an incredible horseman. So um, she said, I'm, I'm going to call you. And, uh, you know, and I need to need you to come and look at this horse. So sure enough, she uh, calls me up, I don't know, probably four or five days later or something like that. She said, I want you to meet me outside of Grand Prix Village. And um, so I drove down there and met her outside the gate. I looked at the horse and I put the testers on the horse and absolutely no response at all. And, uh, you know, I said, I, don't, I really don't know, you know, and. I said, but Andrea, you know, so I believe in, you know, her eye and her, you know, uh, her skills. And I said, the only way I can really tell a difference, maybe taking the shoes off and take a look. And uh, the, the owner was a little reluctant, you know, and they didn't know who I was. And, you know, some guy with these plastic horseshoes, you know, I was like, well, you know, that's the only way I can tell. So Andrea kind of convinced the client to take a shot and let's, you know, what do we got to lose? Like, you know, come on. 
So they finally uh, agreed and I took the shoes off and this horse had terrible wall separations. And a lot of times they won't test because uh, they're, they act more like a hangnail. It's like it's under load that they hurt, not under pressure. So like you can put a test, a hoof testers on and you don't get anything. But when they come down off a big jump, those flares like stretch out and then it'll really bite them. So I explained this to the client and everything. And I said, you know, the downside of this is by the time I take all this hoof wall off and resect all this stuff, you're kind of stuck doing this for probably three or four months. So like, you know, it's up to you. I'm, I'm game to do it if you're game, but you know, this is the deal. I can nail them back on and you're good as you were, or you're stuck with me for that period. And so she said, well, let's take a shot. And I did the horse and, you know, about three days later, I got a phone call from Andrea and she said that that horse is a different animal. It's just amazing. The difference. She said that the client says it's better than it was when they, they rode the horse in Europe and bought it. So happened that same day that Andrea had asked me to go over there, there was a farrier in Kentucky that had been doing a few sport horses with my shoes. And he had a client that was in Wellington and had called him up to do them. And he wasn't going to be in town for a couple of weeks yet. And he called me up and said, could you go do the horse for me? So I said, yeah, sure. You know, and I went over and this horse's feet were in terrible shape, just all broken up and in really rough shape. And so um, I agreed to do the horse, so I did him. And while I was there, there was a trainer across the way that seen that I was gluing, and he said, hey, uh, do you do quarter cracks? And I said, yeah. He said, I got a quarter crack. I've been, you know, having a farrier work on, struggling with it. It's not going well. I'd like to try some, get this new set of eyes on it. If, you, if you're willing, I'd love to have you do it. So when I got done with that horse, I went over and did the third horse that day. And I say, I've been a show horse blacksmith ever since. <laughs> you know, just it's just... And the funny thing about that is, is I bought a house in Wellington years ago. and But I did it because there was a new training facility that was built there called Palm Meadows. That's the only reason I, I bought a house there because it was, you know, 15 minutes to the training track. And it was a huge new facility and it was really central, centrally located where I had customers at Payson Park, which was about 45 minutes north. And the racetrack Gulfstream Park was about 45 minutes south. So I said, what better place to buy a house than like right there, you know? And that was the only reason I lived in Wellington in the next set, you know, and I always knew the showgrounds were there and what was going on, but I never had anything to do with it, you know, other than those yeah. few experiences. And, but that just happened to be the right client, the right horse, the right time. Horses won and won some big classes. And the next thing you know, is like the talk of the towns, these, like these plastic shoes, you know, like ah, that don't work, you know, but everybody was talking about it don't work, but they were talking about it. And, uh, you know, but the, the, yeah, well, he, he got lucky with that one. You know what I mean? And it just kept going around and, uh, pretty soon a couple of guys come by and, you know, like, well, what, what is it with those shoes? And, you know, could you help me with this horse? And the cool part about the, my transition into the sport horse world was by the time I got to that place in my career and my business uh, for the shoes is I was so busy that every one of the farriers there realized the last thing that I wanted was somebody's job. They realized like I, I would work on a horse, but I didn't want no job. And um, they accepted me in very easily. They said, you know, like come in and work with me. And I mean, to this day, like some of the, some of the clients that have asked me to, or some of the farriers that, you know, these are like top, top, you know, farriers that I, I totally look up to that asked me to come in and work with them on, you know, sometimes a, their best client and they, you know, hand me off to, you know, one of the, their clients to do one of their best horses and things like that. It's really humbling to, you know, ha have that have respect. And, you know, like Arnie Gervasio brought me in on, you know, like huge account and, you know, gave me a really neat opportunity to work on a horse and, I mean, you know, Arnie's one of the best. I mean, like, and he's he's given me a you know a horse to work on and working with me and and um, you know, I just it's just really cool. I mean, that. Uh, but the thing was is that where I was at, it just made it easier for me to keep moving on and meeting new people and new connections and and um, word of mouth gets around that the last thing this guy wants to do is you know get in your way. If anything, he's just part of a support team, not a not somebody that's coming in and trying to show the client what you're doing wrong and taking the job away from you or getting somebody else in there. And 
the hardest thing is, is trying to stay neutral, you know, to where you don't start, um, you know, people start coming to me and asking me for referrals to do their horses if they're having trouble. And that gets tough, you know, and there's a lot of politics involved in, but that's actually one of the things that I kind of, I like about the sport horse world is that how different and uh, one barn can be from the other. And sometimes from one end of the barn to the other end of the barn can be totally different. You know, just the politics and the, you know, the ins and outs of the system. And the other is, is uh, obviously money, too. Um, you're dealing with the, the client that actually owns the horse and has the money. They have a horse that's not doing well. They want it fixed. And a lot of times they don't care what that costs. Just get my horse fixed, you know. Um, in the racing world, um, there's a horse with a problem. It might, and that trainer has to make the phone call to the guy and say, Hey, guess what? Your horse is not doing well. You know, in the show world, like that, that owner knows because they're on its back. So there's a whole different, uh, you know, scenario there, how it goes. So the race world, uh, the high stakes there, the high stakes now you're dealing with for somebody listening that wants to build a career and wants to get to those higher end horses. What advice do you have? Oh, I got the best one I have is, is to, to try to be as multidisciplined as possible. I can't tell you what I learned from one that translates to another all the time. Uh, it's or maybe something that's kind of a standard thing that you'd see in one industry like the hunter jumper world. Suddenly like a way of fixing or helping that horse like translates into maybe a therapeutic way of shoeing a racehorse, uh, you know, or vice versa, or, or knowing that how minimalist that we have to be with a racehorse and how little we can get by with um, putting on a package on that horse and him still be on the run and, you know, have that same thought process going over to a jumper and not putting so much stuff on him that suddenly he's not moving right, he's not jumping right, he's, you know, and um, so I think that something that's helped me the most uh, uh, in educating myself and you know, the avenues of opportunities and things like that is, um, you know, just get involved. You got to step out and get out of your comfort zone. You know, last night, me getting up on that stage is about as uncomfortable as I get, but I do it because I said last night, I don't ever want Curtis Burns to be um, remembered for a particular horse that he shot. I hope that maybe somewhere down the road, I'm remembered for, you know, the help that I've helped people move along and educating themselves and, and having the same opportunities that I had. Uh, that's that's me is what I, I want and, uh, and strive for. I'd like to thank Curtis for sharing his story with us, and I'd also like to thank Smart Pack for sponsoring this episode. Stay tuned for future episodes of Farrier Interviews and Hoof Care Information. And until then, thanks for listening.